Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the June 2015 issue of NCP is Nutrition Support Controversies. So joining me today is Dr. Todd Rice, author of the paper, Pros and Cons of Fitting the Septic ICU Patient, which is published in the June 2015 NCP issue. Dr. Rice is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. So thank you, Dr. Rice, for joining me today. Your topic of your paper, whether or not to feed and what to feed the septic ICU patient, can certainly be a controversial topic. So I hope that today we can discuss both research aspects and then some practical take-home pointers that our listeners can use in their practice. So before we start our discussion, Dr. Rice, I'd like to ask you if you have any disclosures on this topic that you would like to share. So, Dr. Hassey, thanks for having me on, and uh, I look forward to a lively and informative discussion. I have one disclosure, which is that, as many of you probably know, I got funding from the NIH for the Eden study, which compared trophic and full feeds in critically ill patients. It's not industry funding. It's from the NIH, but it's obviously pertinent to something that we'll discuss, I think, in this discussion, and I wanted to make people aware of that. Thank you. So I want to start out. In the introduction of your paper, you note that septic patients are not always the same as critically ill patients. Certainly, most septic patients are critically ill, but not all critically ill patients are septic. So for the purpose of our discussion today and to get us kind of all on the same page, could you define first the patient population that we will be discussing today? Sure. So in general, we talk about septic patients, although since we mostly are talking about critical care medicine and critically ill patients, they technically are severely septic, meaning that they have a couple vital sign abnormalities that are related to an infection, either presumed or confirmed, and also that they have at least the start of an organ dysfunction from that infection. And that organ dysfunction can be usually one of mental status, respiratory dysfunction, shock, so blood pressure dysfunction, or renal dysfunction are kind of the big ones. And I think it's important to set this out because we really, in the nutrition world, don't have studies, really any, but very few, that deal with only the critically ill septic patient. And in general, we need to extrapolate data from sort of studies done in critically ill populations that include septic patients but aren't only septic patients. And we try and take those data and say, is there a reason that these shouldn't apply to septic patients in general? What proportion of the patients enrolled in the study were septic? And, you know, can we kind of assume that these data would be the same if we did a study of only septic patients. But those studies of only septic patients are far and few between, and, and so we have to kind of extrapolate from the data that we have. Thank you for setting the stage with that. I want to point out to our listeners that Dr. Rice has several helpful tables in his paper, and we're going to start by kind of talking about the first table in the paper where you talk about the general pros and cons of providing tube feeding to septic ICU patients. So can you give us some examples of when those cons would probably outweigh the pros such that tube feeding should be withheld 
or maybe on the other hand, how you could overcome some of those cons so that you can be successful with providing tube feeding to those patients. So, you know, you're always are weighing the risks and the benefits of anything that we do with our patients in the medical world. And, you know, if you think of kind of the risks and benefits of tube feeding, you know, the benefits are that they sort of nourish the lining, they provide calories and protein and materials for the body to function and to heal. And some of the cons are that there's some risk to providing enteral nutrition. And in patients who are highly prone to vomit, for example, vomiting may be a risk for aspiration. Or in patients that have severe shock, which I think we'll talk about here shortly, you know, providing enteral nutrition into the gut may stress the blood flow to the gut and result in ischemia. And so uh, you have to think about some of the downsides. In that table, I think we also list sort of some downsides of what may be almost thought of as overfeeding. So, for example, hypercapnia, if you're providing maybe too many carbohydrates, you may raise the CO2 level. Or in patients with insulin resistance, which occurs in the in critically ill patient, even if they don't have underlying diabetes, if you provide too much sugar or carbohydrates in that form, you might exacerbate hyperglycemia and those sorts of things. So as you mentioned, there are ways to overcome this. Obviously, close monitoring of electrolytes and glucose levels and bicarb and CO2 levels is one way to kind of ensure that you don't exacerbate those conditions. For patients that may be more prone to vomit, you might be able to either use a prokinetic agent or put your enteral feeding tube a little distal to the stomach, so a post-pyloric feeding tube may lower the risk of vomiting in some of those patients. So there are some techniques that you can do in order to try and overcome some of those risks or cons of tube feeds. Thank you. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, you were the lead author on the Eden study, so I know you're an expert on trophic feeding, and your paper does address the topic of trophic feeding. So I have several points of discussion, and I just want to take each of those points one at a time. So first of all, trophic feeding seems to have a different meaning for different practitioners. So what would you say is the, the best definition for trophic feeding? That's a great question, and you're right. It means different things to different people. To me, trophic feeding means a small amount, small volume of feeding into the lumen of the uh, gut, and it has a nourishing effect on kind of the intestinal border, stimulating secretion of brush border enzymes and secretory IgA and preserving tight junctions and preventing bacterial translocation through all of those things. Now, the question that is often asked is, well, what, what is that small volume? And I, I think we don't know entirely the answer to that. It looks like, at least from, you know, a couple of our studies, one of them we used 10 cc's an hour and one of them we used 20 kilocals, which is really between 15 and 20 cc's an hour. And I think that that level is, is probably enough. We have some data in pigs, for example, that they need 30% of their goal calories in order to have these stimulatory effects. But it's someplace in the range of 10 to 20 cc's or 10 to 20 milliliters per hour of enteral feeds that give us this effect. You also have kind of an extensive summary of the literature and what it says about trophic feedings, but can you, for our podcast here, briefly summarize your findings on the literature on the use of the benefits of trophic feeding? 
So I'm not sure if this is in the manuscript. I think we didn't address it because it's not really in the septic critically ill patient, but trophic feeding kind of started in two forms. One was the surgery population would start feeds when they started after bowel surgery very, very slowly in what they called trophic to just kind of stimulate the gut to contract and peristalsis and get the movements. But even more than that, in the neonatal population and the intensive care unit, these premature babies that were born were at a high risk for necrotizing enterocolitis. And a number of investigators discovered that if you just gave them very, very, very small amounts of mother's milk or even artificial milk, this would protect them from necrotizing enterocolitis when they would get their planned full feeds later on in their ICU course. And at the time, it was called MEN, which was minimal enteral nutrition. But really, it was the same idea as the trophic feeding. And from that and through some animal studies, we've discovered that just simply stimulating the gut with low-volume enteral nutrition has many positive effects, some of which I just commented on, but to repeat them, it stimulates the gut to secrete brush border enzymes, digestive enzymes. It maintains microvilli uh, height and structure it causes the secretion of secretory IgA, so protective against bacteria invading. It protects the tight junctions between the cells. And in general, all of those things kind of prevent bacterial translocation, which many think is a risk factor to kind of exacerbate the inflammatory state of critical illness. And the thought is that when you're critically ill, you lose the integrity of your intestine, bacteria and bacterial products can then translocate into the bloodstream and the lymph and actually exacerbate this inflammation that's occurring in the body. And feeding, it doesn't have to be trophic feeding, but trophic feeding has that effect. So it can be trophic or full, preserves all of those functions of the intestine and decreases the risk of that translocation. One of the things that I think is important is kind of some take-home messages. So can you share with our listeners how you utilize trophic feedings in your practice? So it's kind of interesting if you read, you know, the Eden manuscript or our paper on feeding in the septic patients and nutrition and clinical practice that we're talking about, you'll learn that in our study of trophic versus full feedings, we had similar clinical outcomes, which suggests that you can use trophic feedings in at least the run-of-the-mill patient that were enrolled in those studies, as well as you can use full feedings. So how can you use that in your practice and how can you use that to kind of promote nutrition practice? And the way that I do it is I use that as my window for early initiation of feeds. So you find that people are much less resistant to doing trophic feeding very early in the course of critical illness as opposed to full feeding. In a patient who's in shock or a patient who just got intubated, you know, 12 hours ago or is still sort of in that resuscitative phase of critical illness, if you say, well, let's just start trophic feeds, let's just start something in their gut, the other people on the team seem to think, yeah, it's 10, 15 cc's an hour, that's probably fine. As opposed to if you say, let's just start feeds and try and get them to full feeds and people start thinking about 60 or 80 cc's an hour hour uh, feeds and thinking, how, how am I going to do that in this patient? The trophic feed seems to be more palatable for people early on in critical illness course. And then once they're started, then you can kind of use that opportunity to say, hey, they tolerated the trophic feeds for the last day or for the last two days or whatever, you know, and they're better. Let's increase that to more towards their goal feeds. And I actually tell my nursing staff who does my adjustment of my feeding, I say, look, once they're on trophic feeds at that point for the first five, six days, if you're so busy you can't ever touch their feeds and you just run them at trophic, I'm okay with that. 
but I know you'll have opportunities to try and increase them, and you can increase the, the feeds from trophic towards goal feeds during that time kind of as the patient's condition allows us. But I really use the trophic feed concept as my in to start feeds even earlier, you know, in that first 24. And we are okay at starting them within the first 24 hours. We're, if you said the first 48 hours, I'd say we're pretty good at the first 48. We get right at about 24 hours as our, as our start time. That kind of leads us into our next discussion because another question that's often addressed at the bedside of septic patients is whether or not you should provide two feeding to hypotensive patients on pressures. So what criteria would you give our listeners with regard to this topic? For example, at what level of blood pressure is it generally safe or unsafe to feed enterally, or is there a specific level of pressure support where you should withhold tube feeding? Great question. And a question that I have a gestalt and some information on, but I don't know that I necessarily have the right answer or if there is one right answer. I think it's clear that a patient who is in shock to the point that we can't maintain their blood pressure above mean arterial pressure of 60 or 65 or systolic pressure above 90, for example, regardless of pressors or lots of volume going in, that patient, I think it's pretty clear, is probably not safe to start enteral feeding in. Those patients declare themselves pretty quickly. They either get better and stable or they have refractory shock that leads to their demise. So they don't stay in that state for very long. Once they are in a state where their blood pressure is, you know, whatever you're targeting, 65 for mean arterial pressure or 90 for systolic blood pressure, people do it a little bit differently depending on the institution. But whenever they get to kind of their target blood pressure, then I think it's important to look at, you know, how are they maintained on that blood pressure. If it's on lots and lots and lots of pressors, again, that patient's probably not safe. But if it's on, and what we do is we do 30 mics per minute of norepi is our cutoff. So it's a pretty high dose of norepi, but we'll let you feed if you're on up to that dose. And we have lots of patients that are on less than that dose that we feed enterally and they do, you know, really well and perfectly fine. I should also comment that I think the second part of this is that you have to have some sort of provision, and we have a feeding protocol that monitors gastrointestinal intolerances, and I think it's important to do that because I think a patient who is not ready for feeds and is not necessarily stabilized yet will show you some gastrointestinal intolerances that you should be receptive to, whether that be aspiration, vomiting, abdominal distension, those sorts of things. So I think we have a fairly high threshold. And then we also have pretty explicit monitoring that goes into the provision of feeds so that if a patient shows any intolerances at all, we kind of back off and say maybe they're not quite ready yet for the feeding part of this. We spent most of our time talking about tube feeding, but I think we should also address parental nutrition, which you also mentioned in your paper in NCP. And one of your conclusions was that parental nutrition should be held for about a week in well-nourished ICU patients. What criteria do you use to determine when parental nutrition should be started earlier in the course of treatment? The parental nutrition story is really, really interesting. You know, we had some initial data from the PANIC study that really were concerning that early parental nutrition may be harmful for patients. And I think subsequent data from the calorie study and from Gordon Doig and his colleagues in Australia and on contraindications to enteral feeding patients provide additional evidence that suggests that parental nutrition, I think, is safe in the ICU, and I think you can use it in the ICU, which then leads us to the question of, well, who should we be using it and when should we be using it? 
And I think the easier one is that if you have tried enteral nutrition, and for me it's a week, if I've tried enteral nutrition for a week and I'm just not getting any nutrition in at all, and the patient's still critically ill and is going to be critically ill for a while, I think doing supplemental parenteral nutrition in that patient after a week is helpful to the patient, beneficial to the patient, and probably a good thing to do. There are clearly patients that you probably can't even try internal nutrition in that first weekend, whether they have some GI fistula or short bowel syndrome or something that they're just getting over that doesn't even let you try internal nutrition. And in those patients, I think starting parenteral nutrition earlier in those patients is probably the right thing. I say probably, and I caution because honestly, we don't have good hard evidence that we know for sure that's the right thing. But we know that we can't just let patients go without any nourishment for long periods of time. And if it looks like we don't have any possibility that we're going to get enteral nutrition in the next few days, then parenteral nutrition in that population, I suspect, is the right thing to do. Well, I appreciate your discussion on these points, and I want to give you the opportunity to add any additional comments that you'd like to share with our listeners today. I think we've had a great discussion. I hope this is helpful for people, and I hope this kind of helps people tailor their practice of nutrition support to what's best for the patient. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. Rice, for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. And I invite our listeners and our readers to find out more about these nutrition support controversies in the June 2015 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.